Well, please turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 28 and 29. You can find it on page 983 in the Bibles there in the chairs. So this morning we are continuing in our seven-week series on the vision statement of Redeemer Church, that guiding statement, that, that life-focusing statement that we have. This is meant to give us direction, to fuel our efforts, to align us so that we have a common purpose, a common vision in mind, so that we're not just kind of gathering together but living and, and working out of our own efforts, our own initiatives, our own visions, but that we can come together as one. And live the life that God has called us to live. This morning we're looking at the second phrase of the statement. It's simply two words right there in white. We strive. And last week when we started, we, we dealt with the foundation clause. The reason, the ultimate pinnacle for why we do anything. is because we exist to exalt Christ. And this week, we strive. Now, these two words hold the missional outworking of our purpose, of the reason why we are here. And I just want to warn you ahead of time, as we talk about our efforts, our striving, our motivation, our activity in the gospel, that we never lose sight of that foundation clause. This sermon is meant to accompany the one that came before it, not stand on its own. Okay? So remember, we exist to exalt Christ. If you've spent any amount of time or been a Christian for any amount of time, particularly if you're a sermon-loving, book-reading, passion-going Christian, you've heard the name John Piper, right? One of his most memorable quotes ever comes from the first paragraph of his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, The Supremacy of God in Missions. Now, this book is Piper's Theology of Missions, the activity of the church to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ throughout the world so that many from every tongue and every tribe and every nation would come to a joy-filled, saving, soul-satisfying relationship with Jesus Christ. This is his theology of mission. And when you think about it, what could be more glorious? What could be greater? What could be more grand than this effort right here? Well, here's how he begins. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate and not man. The primary purpose of the church, the reason why we exist, is to worship God in Jesus Christ. That is why we are here. Missions is secondary and is a temporary necessity because the exaltation of Christ is not ultimate, is not first in our hearts. And this is why we begin our vision statement with that foundation clause, because We exist to exalt Christ. That has to be over everything. The reason why you and I are here, the reason why we were created is to worship God in Christ. But the exaltation of Christ in our hearts is not a passive activity. It's not something that we just do in word. 
It's not like emptying your mind through transcendental meditation. It's not passive or stationary sanctification that we just need to let go and let God. Worship is not primarily closing your eyes and raising your hands as you just kind of quietly draw that circle around yourself and you cry and you sing your heart out with Hillsong. Worship is not primarily good deeds. No, we exist to exalt Christ and we do that by by doing all things. Everything you think about, Every word that you say, every decision that you make, every activity that you perform, done to the glory of Christ, making an intentional and concerted effort to make His name great and not your own. It is not about living for yourself. And because that's the case, worship, believe it or not, results in work, results in effort. Because we exist to exalt Christ, and this is not automatic, we strive. What do we strive towards? To see lives transformed to the glory of God through the proclamation of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit to all peoples. Striving is the missional response to the true purpose of our existence, the exaltation of Christ. But yet, if we're honest, we neither worship nor strive. We don't because Christ is not ultimately first in our lives. We still live for something else. We still live for ourselves. Or we don't because we're lazy or because we're passive or because we we let the burden of responsibility to fall to someone else rather than recognizing that vision belongs to me and I need to own it in everything that I do. Or we're too afraid. Or we're too influenced by others. Or we treat obedience as some sort of passive mystical experience. Well, I'll, I'll worship, I'll, I'll work when I feel compelled to. The truth is our vision statement looks more like this. Could you bring ours back up? I want you to compare these together. This is what we actually live out of. And compare it to what you see here. Because we exist to exalt Christ on certain times during the week or when we're singing or when we feel like it, we sit idly by and we wait to see if God will magically change some people, though we don't really believe that it's possible, so we remain apathetic to the glory of God if there is such a thing as we wait for someone else to proclaim the gospel in the power of the entertaining but not sanctifying Holy Spirit to all people that we like and feel comfortable around. That's a little bit more accurate as to how we live. It's surprisingly easy to see how much of that fits the true motives of our hearts. And my friends, that is not why we are here. Living together for the exaltation of Christ takes effort. We are sinners living in a sinful world with a bunch of sinners. That's going to be a struggle. That's going to be hard. But what we'll see this morning as we look at Colossians 1, 28 and 29, is that the missional outworking of our true purpose, the exaltation of Christ, is everyone's responsibility. Everyone's. 
We all have to work. We all have a part to play. What God wants us to understand this morning is this, that we are to strive to present everyone mature in Christ. We strive to see everyone reach maturity in Christ. And so let's look at it from our text. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. It says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. We strive to see everyone reach maturity in Christ. And this text identifies four aspects of our efforts, four aspects of our striving. They are the mission of the church, the goal of the church, the effort of the church, and the promise to the church. And we'll look at each one of those in turn. First of all, the mission of the church is to make disciples of Christ. The first initial response, so what we are ultimately to do as a church, because we exist to exalt Christ, is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot of confusion about what the mission of the church actually is. I mean, and this has been an ongoing debate, an ongoing issue. How are we to think about this? What are we to do? How are we to do it? Who is supposed to do it? Right? I mean, books and books have been written about this. I mean, do is the task, is our effort simply to just worship him so... What that means is that we just gather together in a holy huddle and kind of separate ourselves from the world and just kind of hide out as we sing songs and worship to God and then just await his return. Is that the mission of the church? Or is it completely opposite, just going completely gonzo the other way, that, that it's completely and totally outward. It's about doing good deeds. It's about building the community. It's about building the kingdom. It's about I don't know, bringing in shalom to create sort of cultural renewal. Is the mission of the church the work of specialists, of trained missionaries and, you know, degree-toting pastors? Or is it the responsibility of every individual believer? And though we can't possibly cover all of this issue in detail, I do believe that Paul provides us with reasonable answers to the questions in this passage. If this is something that interests you, which I think that it should, I'd recommend to you What is the Mission of the Church by Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert. Okay? It's a great resource. You want to check it out. Just had our interns go through it. It's been a great conversation. Look forward to it continuing. But here, let's get back to our text. Our text does provide sufficient answers to the question. Now, as always, I've got to deal with context. Remember what's going on here. Remember the big picture, so we're not taking this out of context. Paul is writing to the church in Colossae. This was a small-town church, right? Pretty insignificant church. Paul didn't plant this church. This was more than likely planted by Epaphras, who at some point in time heard the gospel from Paul, maybe in Ephesus because it's close to Colossae, and then end up he went and planted that church, and he ends up finding Paul in prison. He's got all these issues that he wants to talk about. And then Paul is writing this letter to address them. So Paul has never met these believers in this small town church. But yet he starts out by telling them about his work as an apostle, what he is called to do, his 
mission, his objective. Okay, that's the setting that this is taking place in. And here's how he describes his mission. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So Paul's objective, his task, was to proclaim Christ in order to make mature disciples. This was his labor. This was his effort. But it wasn't just his only, because it says we, him we proclaim. Most directly, that's Timothy and Epaphras, but it's also the church as well. The mission of the church is not simply to be a blessing or to perform good works. Friends, anyone can do that. What ultimately separates the good works that you do from the good works of an atheist? Really? What is it that separates the, the, you know, I don't know, digging wells in Africa, like you doing that, versus a Muslim doing that? The only thing that does is the gospel, right? The only thing that separates it out. And though we can and we should do good deeds in keeping with our faith, these are not ultimate things. Nor do we build the kingdom. Because I, I hate this phrase. I hate the terminology. We, we don't build the kingdom. We don't advance God's kingdom. Okay, we saw last week, Jesus is the king who owns it all. Everything. He created it. He redeemed it. He's in the process of reconciling all things to himself. It's all his. It's not like there's areas or pockets where he doesn't rule and reign. It's not pockets where he's like, oh, man, if only I had the Middle East. Uh, I really, gosh, I need you guys to think about going there and doing that because what am I going to do? I don't rule over the Middle East. I need you guys to go and do it. No. Jesus rules. He's the king overall, whether it's recognized or not. So we don't build the kingdom. We don't advance the kingdom through our proclamation, through our efforts. What we do is help people to see the kingdom. We help reveal the kingdom to them and to ourselves. We see in actuality that he is ruling over all things. We don't build it. We merely reveal it. And really, that's God's work. Nor is missions about bringing in shalom, this idea of peace and well-being on earth. If that were so, I mean, we could talk about this for a long time. But if that were so, why do we read in Revelation that the king is going to return with the sword to destroy? We're bringing peace and unity and harmony and all that kind of stuff, and the world's just going to get better and better and better. Why is Jesus coming with a sword? He should be coming with an olive branch. Now, we could talk about this all day. But the simple fact is the mission of the church is to make disciples. That was Jesus' final commission in every single one of the Gospels. Even if you want to say, well, no, Mark, because I throw out the end of Mark. Well, Mark also says it in chapter 13 and chapter 14. So, tough, right? It's there in Acts. The big banner verse, Acts 1.8. You, you kind of see that's the thesis, and you see the rest of Acts is, is them fulfilling it. That's what you see them doing in the rest of the New Testament. And how are they doing it? By doing good deeds and not saying anything, right? No, by proclaiming Christ. That's what they're doing. The primary objective throughout the New Testament is to make disciples. 
Okay, just think about the Great Commission. If you're a Baptist, you grew up Baptist, you love, you're very familiar with the Great Commission. We wave this thing around like a banner. If only we were as faithful to do it as we were to wave it around, you know. If you're not, it's okay. But the Great Commission is, is Matthew 28, 18 through 20, okay. And Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Well, there's the reality of the situation. The king already rules over his kingdom. There it is. All authority has been given to him. And because that is true, here's the mission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What a great promise that in all of that effort, in that mission, Jesus is present with his people. The king is already ruling his kingdom. He promises his presence. He has all authority. Therefore, your marching orders are this. Go and make disciples. So this is one of the times where knowing Greek is helpful. right? Because in Greek, there's always one verb, and then there's a bunch of participles attached to it. We see four verbs there. We kind of treat them all as imperatives. And a lot of times we put a lot of stock in the first one. Go. Well, he's talking about going. We've got to go. Right? But no, the, the main verb, the imperative, the command there is make disciples. Go, baptize, and teach are all connected to that. Now, they carry some of the force because they're connected to it. But what that means is because you are called to make disciples, go. But also, as you go, make disciples. And how do we make disciples? How are we called to do that? Well, gospel proclamation. It starts before they're believers, right? Because the entrance into the church, that sign that designates is their, their outward profession of faith in Christ is baptism. You're baptizing them. That means that you've done some work beforehand. You've proclaimed the gospel to them. And when does gospel proclamation end? When you've taught them to observe all that Christ commanded. Is anyone there yet? I didn't think so. So basically... Until Christ returns again. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So when Christ comes back, not even then will we be done with gospel proclamation. Read Revelation. Worthy are you, Lamb who was slain. So, I completely lost where I was. Here we are. <laughs> Sorry about that. When um, Acts 1.8 is another passage. just confirms the mission that we're called to. Here Jesus is clearly speaking to more than the 11. This is the last final word that he has to say before he ascends into heaven. And he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. There's a promise. Just like the promise we saw in Matthew 28, 18-20. There's a promise. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And as you read through the book of Acts, that's exactly what they're doing. When you read through the New Testament letters, that's exactly what you see them doing. They are bearing witness to Jesus. They are proclaiming Christ. Their mission was not to perform signs and wonders and miracles or do a lot of good deeds or to live as a peaceful, revitalizing community and then try to slip Jesus in the back door. 
though they did these things in keeping with their faith, they provided validity to the truth of their message. But let's not mistake it. Their mission, their objective, was to bear witness to Christ. They were to make disciples. Him we proclaim. And Paul tells us how we are to proclaim Christ. He says, by warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. There's two major breakdowns, two major components to our proclamation of Christ that are necessary. He says, first of all, we must warn them. We warn them of the reality, of the consequences, of the dangers of living your life in rebellion to God. This effort of trying to live for myself, live without God, to live as if this is my world and I'm God. I don't need God to interfere with my life or I, I want to dictate when that is in my life. Well, there's a problem there. There's consequences. There are warnings. There's, there's dangers to that. And as much as we might like to think that death is all there is, and that that's it for the end of an unbeliever, that's just not true. For the rebel, it's eternal condemnation under the just and holy wrath of God. And this forever. And so we warn them. We warn them that, that their rebellion leads to, to further sin and a further hardening of their hearts and further shame and further evil and further judgment of God. But that warning is not just for unbelievers. We are to warn believers as well. We warn them out of love. We warn them because we care for their souls. And we want them to see, see them live every day, every moment of their lives to the glory of God. It's unloving to not warn. Our desire is to live in the reality of who we are in Christ. And let's face it, we don't do that. We need to be reminded of the gospel. We need to be reminded of the truth. We need to be reminded of the futility of living under that old pattern of sin and to turn away from that and to follow Christ and to remind people that there is no neutral decision that you can make about anything because there are motives that work at your heart. And we help them to dig those out. Our longing, our longing as Christians is not just to get, to reach that lowest common denominator enough for us to kind of be in heaven and then we're good and we don't want to deal with anything. Like the longing of a Christian, according to scripture, is to live all, like do all things in order to protect the name and the purity of Christ and his church. We want to be above reproach in all areas, in all things. So things, our decisions matter. We want to caution believers against the corrective and loving discipline of the Lord. Not that it's not good and loving and necessary, but if they can avoid the loving discipline of the Lord, then we want them to do that. And we want to exhort them, lest they prove themselves to be hard-hearted unbelievers. This is why the New Testament is filled with words like admonish and reprove and discipline and rebuke and exhort, and correct. We are called to help one another grow in Christ, and that requires warning them. 
Second, we proclaim Christ in teaching everyone. Where warning is is sort of that restraining and correcting side of our proclamation, focusing more on mortification or putting inconsistencies in our lives and the decisions, our ethical implications of our decisions, and kind of putting those in rest and submitting them to Christ. The teaching is more of the instructive, the life-giving, the hope-giving side of things where we train and encourage and direct them through faithful doctrinal teaching to life and joy and hope in Christ. Proclaiming Christ requires wisdom. Right? We warn them and proclaim we warn them and teach them in all wisdom. Right? We don't just kind of run around and kind of say, ah, you know, kind of freaking out, just warning them about the end of the world. Nor do we teach them false truths. We need to teach them how to apply biblical wisdom to every decision. We, and that requires work. That requires effort. That, that requires study. And that's not unspiritual. That's just plain wise. We have to work hard at it. It doesn't just happen every time we crack our Bibles open and pray a simplistic prayer. We must strive through the God-given means that he has given us in this church to faithfully and accurately and wisely and lovingly proclaim to everyone, leaving no one behind. Now, up to this point, you might be saying, yeah, Chad, that's, that's a lot of talk to, like, the apostles or to pastors and teachers, but that doesn't really apply to me. Well, here are just a few passages that use those exact same words, and they apply them to the church, the entire church. Romans 15, 14. Paul says to the Romans, again, whom he's never met, but he's heard these faithful testimonies of their wisdom and knowledge. And he says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Teach. Same word there. First Thessalonians 5.14, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, warn them, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Second Thessalonians 3.15, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Guys, this is something you need to just kind of take as a piece of wisdom. When a brother comes up to you and he warns you and he rebukes you and he reproves you, it's not because he hates you. It's because he loves you enough to tell you the truth. Guys, why? Why would you distrust them? Look at your relationship. That person has been consistently faithful to you. You need to hear him out. You know, I could point to Romans 12:7 or 1 Timothy 2:12 or 2 Timothy 2:22, Hebrews 5:12. There's so many passages, but one of the clearest passages that's actually the closest to our text comes just a couple of chapters later in Colossians 3, verse 16. It says, "Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly." teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. It's the exact same word. Everything. Guys, Jesus' mission, according to Mark 1, was to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, to proclaim the gospel. And that's what we see him do, and that's what we see him give to his apostles. That's the directive. 
that he places on the church. Think about the Apostle Paul. You read of his conversion in Acts chapter 9. You see clearly he was called to make disciples. That was his mission. That was his objective. And if you read through the rest of his letters, you see that's exactly what he gives and commends to each member of the local church. He says to them flat out, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so whose responsibility is it? to carry on this mission of making disciples by proclaiming Christ. It is the churches, every single person. You know, here at Redeemer, we articulate the mission this way. Redeemer Church exists to build redemptive communities of gospel-centered people. At one point, we'll have a sermon series where we unpack that a lot further. But here's where it applies to you. That's not just my mission statement. It's not just the elders' mission statement. It's not just the church's mission statement. When we gather corporately on Sunday morning, that is your mission statement. How do you live in light of that? How do you practice that? How do you put that into activity in your lives? Well, that's where we have the strategy, the six Ps. That I mean, alliteration is annoying, I know, but it's effective. Okay, so nevertheless, we do that through proclaiming the gospel, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom. We do that through developing personal relationships, both with believers so that we can live out the one another's that we see in Scripture, but also with unbelievers so that we can point them to the truth and beauty of Jesus Christ. We carry out that mission by striving in prayer together or by seeking to recreate a gospel presence in our neighborhoods or in our schools or in our workplaces or in our communities. You each have a unique sphere of influence. We carry out our mission faithfully by plodding ahead in planned patience. What this means is, hey, just because I don't see this guy doing what I want him to do, I'm not going to give up on him. I'm going to continue to pray for him. Or just because this thing is not happening the way we want it to doesn't mean that we just scrap it. We're going to continue to plan and move ahead and be patient and want for God to provide the fruits. And we carry out that mission by planting by growing and multiplying believers and leaders and groups and ministries and churches. You have a part to play in that. Those six Ps, you can live out every day. All of that is encompassed in that simple phrase, make disciples. This is not simply my mission, the mission of the elders, the mission of our church corporately, but it's the mission of every single member. You are called to play your part in making disciples of Christ, in building redemptive communities of gospel-centered people, in proclaiming and personal relationships and prayer and presence and plant patience and planting. And the question is, how are you intentionally striving to carry out that mission? How are you, member of Redeemer Church, how are you participating in that mission. You have a part to play. How are you striving towards that end? How are you laboring to make disciples of Christ? And if you're not a member, you're not off the hook because the general rule applies to you as well. And the reality is you need to be a part of a community of faith whereby you can live out those one another's and carry out that mission together. So what's keeping you from obeying Christ? So that's the mission of the church. Hopefully it's clear. Again, we could talk more and more and more about it. 
but it should be sufficient. We are to make disciples of Christ. But the goal is not simply to get decisions for Christ or to get people to pray prayers or make professions of faith. Second, the goal of the church is to present everyone mature in Christ. And that purpose statement is found right there, the second half of verse 28. And we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. What does it say about decisions? What does it say about self-made professions? What does it say about saying the sinner's prayer or you know, receiving baptism or having spiritual experiences to bring validation to the truth of your profession? Nothing. It says maturity in Christ. That is the goal. That's what we're trying to achieve. Paul understands his goal when he stands before Christ is to be able to hold that church up and present them as mature, to present them pure and spotless before Christ. He knows that that's his responsibility. That's the weight of his objective as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And I can tell you guys, I feel that every single day. Pray for you every week. I have to give an account for your soul. It scares me to death. But it's just not the responsibility of apostles and pastors and teachers. That responsibility is shared by each member of the church as well. What does it mean to be mature? We've got to answer this question before we can know how we're actually getting there. Are we making disciples to a sufficient degree? How do we reach maturity? Well, that word, I hate to break it to you, means perfect. It means complete. It's the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 5, 48, when he says, You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. There's your standard. Or as as Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. Same word, present, same concept. You guys have the responsibility of presenting your bodies, plural, as a single, corporate, living sacrifice. holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Why do you need to discern the will of God? So that you can live out the perfect will of God. You think that doesn't have... Implications on every single decision that you make? In Colossians 1.22, Paul labors to present them holy and blameless and above reproach, steadfast in truth, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. In Colossians 4.12, he ties maturity to being able to stand fully assured in the will of God. Perhaps no passage more clearly describes the meaning of maturity or perfection than Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, where he says, God gave the apostles and the prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, 
for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the full knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, perfect manhood. What is that? To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's your state. And why? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning or by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, for whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Being mature in Christ means that you become like Christ. I'm not talking about the idea of sinless perfection here, that we cease to sin, that we are perfect in that way. That's not what I'm referring to. But we are called to live in the reality of who we are in Christ. You see, when you come to Christ by repentance and faith, the perfections of Christ, the only one truly perfect human being, is applied to you so that when God looks at you, he sees the perfections of Christ. That's how he views you. This is why Paul can say to the most messed up bunch of Christians you can read about in the New Testament, the Corinthians, he can call them perfect. However, maturity or perfection doesn't end with us placing our faith in Christ and receiving his righteousness. We are called to strive to make it our goal to become like Christ, having the mind and the heart and the affections and the obedience of Christ. One who is mature in Christ knows what Christ knows. To be mature in Christ requires wisdom and knowledge. It requires not only knowing facts about theology, but correctly applying it to every experience of life. It's about knowing and loving and seeking to understand who God is in all of his complexity. And that takes effort. That's why we have foundation courses where we study theology. The one who's mature in Christ loves what Christ loved, worshiping the Lord with all the heart, all the soul, all the mind, all the strength, loving your neighbor as yourself, loving God completely in every area. One who is mature in Christ desires to obey Christ in all things. A mature Christian strives to observe all that Christ commanded. Leaves no stone unturned. And if you miss one of these elements, whether knowing, loving, or doing, then you are not mature in Christ. That's what Paul's talking about in Colossians 1. That's what he's talking about in Ephesians 4 when he calls the church to strive together towards maturity. And in the end, when Christ returns, God will complete his work in us, we will be made perfect. But in between us being declared perfect through faith in Jesus Christ and that final completed work that God does in us to make us perfect, in between those two ends, there's us striving to become like Christ, to be made perfect, to be presented as mature in Christ. 
But we are not just to strive for our own maturity. We are not the end of it ourselves. He says three times in that passage, you warn everyone. You teach everyone. So that you may present everyone mature in Christ. They call us to leave no one behind. I mean, regardless of age, regardless of affinity, regardless of how much you like them or not, regardless of your interests or the personal baggage that they bring into the relationship, regardless of their income, regardless of their sin struggles, regardless of race or language or anything else, we are to strive to present everyone mature in Christ. Young, old, black, white, rich, poor, sinful, or self-righteous. We are to present them mature in Christ. And I don't know if you caught it back there in Ephesians 4.16, but it tells us that the church only grows and builds itself up in love when each member is working properly. So what that means is if you fail to present everyone mature in Christ, you prove that you are not mature in Christ. And it also means that if you are dragging your heels, not desiring to obey Christ and all that he's commanded, not loving as Christ loved, not knowing what Christ has called us to know, then you're affecting everyone else. Whether they know about it or not, you're affecting the life of the body. So you can't muster up the strength to do what is necessary do for the love of the person sitting next to you. Here's the thing about maturity. We like the idea of maturity in Christ. We do. We like it very much. And we certainly like the idea of being considered to be mature in Christ by others. We like it when somebody says, hey, Chad, he's, he's mature in Christ. But the reality is, if we checked our hearts, if we checked our motives, if we checked what we're really about and our desires and the way we think, the way we make decisions, we would see that what we really want is a certain level of maturity and no more. I'm willing to go this far, but no higher. I'm willing to pursue maturity in this area, that area, this area over here, This one's mine. And we certainly don't want the burden of helping other people to reach maturity in Christ. And how do I know this? How many of you hide areas of sin in your life and you come here on Sunday morning and you put on this face like you've got it all together so you will be well received? How often do you get defensive when a brother or sister speaks the truth in love to you? justify it away, shift the blame onto somebody else, go all self-righteous. <laughs> you think, I've got problems? Let's talk about you for a minute. How many of you do, do you avoid reading the Word or praying or living life in community or listening to sermons or reading books because you know that if you do, you'll feel convicted about your sin and you don't want that. So I'm just going to I'm just not going to do that. I'm I'm going to distance myself. How many of you try to live your life in ignorance to biblical wisdom on issues? I'm not talking about worldly wisdom. I'm talking about biblical wisdom on issues in your life. 
Things like spending, the way you spend your time, the way you spend your money, the things that you seek to entertain yourself with, couples, the way you think about contraception, or the way you define sex, right? I, I, I don't want to look to see what the Bible says about sex because I want to set my own boundaries. I want to do what I want to do. I want to live my life the way I want to live it. And I'll, I'll take your word at this and this and this, but this one is mine and forget you. I don't care about what you think. I don't care about what the Word has to say about that issue. Or we chalk it up to personal opinion. Well, there's disagreements about that. People believe different things. Well, what does God say about it? Think that God doesn't care about the, what you consider the trivial decisions in your life? He does because He cares about you. And he knows your heart far better than anyone else. And you might be able to pull the rug over some people's eyes, but you will never pull them over his. We don't want to stand before him and give an account for that. Oh, sorry, I didn't think you were serious, God. Oops. Hey, you're gracious, right? I need grace. Oops. But it's not even about our own maturity that we must be concerned about. Again, we are called to present everyone mature in Christ. How are you doing that? How are you making intentional effort to invest in the lives of other people? God has given you a unique sphere of influence. God has placed people in your lives. And if you just looked around, you would see somebody that's being left behind. Somebody that's not getting it. How are you spending yourselves on others? How are you sharing in one another's burdens and so fulfilling the law of Christ? How are you sacrificing yourself? I mean really sacrificing yourself for the good of another. Maybe another way to ask is, are you showing partiality? Right? Well, I don't mind spending myself on this person because they're a lot like me. I like the same things that they like, and we kind of do the same sort of things, and we're the same age, and we have the same interests and the same goals, and basically I'm not really loving him. I'm loving what I see of myself in him. How do you view people? I mean, you see, oh, well, that that guy, he's hopeless. Her, she's a drag. I want to spend time with people that are like me. But kids, elderly, poor? get it. Friends, we are called not just to be self-professing disciples, but but to be mature, above reproach, Christ-like disciples who spend ourselves on others to help them reach maturity in Christ too. This is God's call for you. This is God's call for us. Don't leave this to someone else. Because it's hard. Because you don't feel like you're up to the task. But I do need to say this. Some of you are. Some of you are investing yourself. And you are working hard. And you are praying. And you are trying to be faithful. And you are pouring yourself into other people. Thank you. Thank you. It is not lost. Do not grow weary in doing good. But others, you honestly have to ask the question, 
What's keeping me? Who has God placed in your life? Who is about to be left behind? And how are you investing in them? Who's in your sphere of influence? And how will you help? Our mission and goal is to make mature disciples of Christ. And this requires work. The third point is the effort of the church, and that is to toil and struggle. Striving for maturity in Christ is just flat-out hard work. There's no easy solution. It's not just a matter of letting go and letting God. It's not just a matter of praying a prayer and then waiting for God to kind of turn on the switch. It takes effort. Paul describes the task of making mature disciples of Christ as a toil and a struggle. Now, he doesn't say this to discourage us or to bum us out or to cause us to despair, but he's just speaking frankly of the effort that is required. Striving towards maturity as a body is painful. It is exhausting. It is a fight of faith. It is a labor of love. Maturity of Christ both as an individual and as a body, takes work. Where there's work, there's going to be friction. Where there's work, there's going to be conflict. Where there is work, there is going to be hurt. Where there is work, there will be heartbreak. There will be. You see, no matter how much we want it to be easy, maturity doesn't happen just because you offer a prayer to God. It doesn't happen simply by osmosis. If I'm just around somebody that's more mature than me, I'm just like, poof, I'm more mature. It actually happens through teeth grinding, blood, sweat, and tears. The word toil conveys the idea of hard work and exhaustion. Paul quite literally wears himself out for the maturity of others. In our relatively suffering-free world of easy access and instant gratification, we often fail to see the rest and the reward that comes from hard work. We don't know what it means to work hard. We miss out on the joy and the delight that comes from persevering through issues because all the best things in life are hard fought for. And if we don't fight hard for them, we'll never see them as really of any value. In addition to toil... Paul describes striving for maturity as a struggle. This is the Greek word where we get our word agony. It is agonizing. He describes it as fighting and struggling and striving and straining or engaging in an athletic contest. No athlete that is of any salt stands on the winner's platform without years of training and hard work. This is one of the things that I love about the Olympics. Now, I don't always understand why somebody spends so much of their effort for a little gold thing and a chance to listen to a song while you're standing on a little stage. But I can appreciate the value. And and when they weep, when that song is played and they got that medal around their chest, man, my heart weeps too because I know what it took for them to get there. Their victory is more meaningful because of how much work, how much effort they had to put into it, how much opposition that they had to face, and all the competition that stood in their way to keep them from that area. Guys, it's no gain. It's no victory. If, I, if, if like, you know, Michael Phelps was just to jump in the pool at the Y and just kind of totally cream the old lady that's in the lane next to him, like talking smack, that's, that doesn't matter, right? There's no victory in that. 
when there's striving, and where there is toil, and where there is pain, and where there is opposition, and where there's competition, there's great value in winning the prize. Paul believed in the necessity of striving for the maturity of Christ so much that he was willing to stake his life on it. He bore the scars of his efforts in his own body. He was beaten and imprisoned and shipwrecked and stoned and eventually killed to help others reach maturity in Christ. He was with them in fear and trembling. He wept with those who wept. He rejoiced with those who rejoiced. And he said to the most problematic church in all of the New Testament, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. But this is not Paul's unique responsibility as an apostle. It is the responsibility of all churches and especially church leaders to do the same thing. So if you're prayerfully considering through the idea of ministry, you don't want to come and talk to me, but prepare for a whooping. It's good, but it's hard. But it's good. Striving for maturity in Christ is messy. Again, you are a sinner in a sinful world living with a bunch of sinners. There's going to be hurt. People are going to break your heart. But if you pursue the godly life, the life that you are called to in Christ Jesus, you have a promise you will be persecuted. And not just will you receive suffering from those who are on the outside, but from the inside as well. But we are called to strive through the pain. We must recognize the growth results in pain. I think that there's a reason why we experience growth pains. So we can know that all growth requires pain. But in the end, it's worth it. And how do we know this? Because we can read joy in the words of Paul as he wrote from prison for the call of making mature disciples in Christ. Guys, there's so much more that could be said. I mean, I could tell you stories of joys and losses that come from loving others. But the question really boils down to this. How are you toiling? How are you striving toward maturity for yourself and others? I know this seems hard. I know it seems scary. I know this seems overwhelming and you don't feel up the task and it seems just emotionally exhausting and it might not even make sense in your mind. But God's ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And God, in his infinite wisdom, decided that the best way for us to grow in maturity in Christ is not to try to save ourselves and to seek our own securities and comforts and provisions and all of that, but actually to spend ourselves and sacrifice ourselves on others. Though ministry is hard and emotionally draining, I can tell you this, my heart gets closer to God to those whom I serve as a result of my efforts. The more that I sacrifice myself, the more I experience love and joy and peace in believing. But it's hard. But the best things in life are hard. And sure, it's going to hurt. But where there's hurt, there's much healing in Christ. You see, the one who calls you to toil and struggle is the same one that sacrificed himself for your soul. He suffered and died on the cross 
so that you would not ultimately be bound to an eternity of toil and struggle and pain and loss. His sacrifice freed you from that. Jesus went everywhere that he calls you to go. He does it first. And I can tell you this. He died and rose to bring you healing. And one day, when you stand before him, the only things that you're going to look back on your life and say those things matter are the things that brought you the most tears and the most pain and the most toil, but also the most smiles and the most joy and the most hope. So what's keeping you from spending yourself on others? God has called us to strive towards obedience in Christ. We are to strive to enter through the narrow gate. We are to strive together in prayer. We are to strive to build up the body of Christ. We are to strive for the unity in the faith of the gospel. We are to strive for godliness, keeping careful watch on our lives and on our doctrine in order to save ourselves and those who hear us. We are to strive to enter into God's rest through obedience to Christ. We are to strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. But we don't strive alone. We strive together. But even more than that, alongside the effort of the church, there is a promise to the church. We've already seen it in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and we've seen it again in Acts 1, 8, and it's here as well. Paul says that we will receive God's ever-present power to complete the mission. You are not alone. He says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. If this task of presenting everyone mature in Christ seems really overwhelming and impossible to you, guess what? It is. But it's not with God. And God promises his strength. I mean, literally, this is like, you know, with all his energy that he energizes you so powerfully with. Like he's just kind of stacking up terms here to kind of make it clear. God is at work in you. God will equip you to do what he has called you to do. If you're trusting in your own efforts alone, then result will be fear and failure and discouragement and despair. But God calls us to do what we cannot do so that we can see his power at work within us. You see, God's grace is not simply unmerited favor given to us at some past point in time to save us from our sins. And then from there on out, it's up to us. But God's grace is an ever-present, undeserved power to equip us to do what He has called us to do. And often the reason why we don't see God at work in our lives, the reason why we fail to see God's power, is because we never step beyond our own abilities to see Him standing where we think that we cannot go. I'm going to draw a line about around who I am and what I'm capable of, and I'm not going to go any further. And when I fail to do that, I fail to see that he is right there waiting and saying, test me in this. Do you not believe my words? And guys, when we do that, when we fail to see the power of God, you know, we're going to fail to toil and struggle. We're, we're going to fail to exhaust ourselves because we don't believe that God is strong enough. We don't really believe that he's powerful enough. If we don't step out in faith in that kind of way, then all we're going to end up doing is doubting whether there's any power in the gospel at all. You can take him at his word. 
I've got to tell you that this has been a life-sustaining verse for me. I was excited about the opportunity to preach on this passage. Why it's long. Sorry. I'm not sorry. This is one of those things like last week. I'm not sorry, but I'm sorry. Because this this verse has been huge for me. I, I can tell you that I have not been, am not, and will not be up to planting this church. There have been times of just despair and sleeplessness and worry and anxiety that has even resulted in physical pain. Though I'm not alone because Paul experienced all those same things. And if I were to trust simply in myself, I would have quit a long time ago. It's that hard. But in those times when I was ready to quit because of the toil and struggle was so great, God would remind me of this passage, this one. His grace is sufficient. He is powerful enough to do what he has promised. He equips us to do what he has called us to do. So, friends, let's put him to the test in this. Let's strive together in the cause of Christ to see everyone reach maturity in Christ. And as we do, I wanted to leave us with one of my favorite quotes from Martin Luther that really talks about what the Christian life and this this goal, this ambition of reaching maturity in Christ is all about. He says this, This life, therefore, is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. Not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be but we are growing towards it. The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam with glory, but all is being purified. Friends, let us strive towards that end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace that you have given us in Christ that you have opened our eyes to see the truth and beauty of the gospel that it is proclaimed to us, and that you have given this privilege and this responsibility for us to strive towards helping others and ourselves to reach maturity in Christ. Oh God, I pray that we would be honest about our own hearts, our own deceits, our own struggles with the idea, but I pray that we would lay those down and trust in you completely as all-sufficient, as able and powerful. I pray that we would step outside of our comfort zones, outside of the boundaries that we have placed upon ourselves to see that you are there working with this energy that so powerfully works within us. But I pray that we would recognize that all of this, the the fuel and the goal of our mission is the exaltation of Christ and the fact that he has saved us. God, we thank you for this unique privilege and responsibility. I pray that our hearts would be changed and we would together strive to help everyone reach maturity in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.